Hi guys, welcome to Belief Alchemy with Megan O'Neill. Every week I'll be sitting down to interview visionary women who will teach us how to have a more magical mindset and to create greater possibility in our lives and in our business. Okay, so welcome, welcome. Nice to see you coming from PEI. I kind of wish I was there at this point, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, it's a little snowy and cold here, but well, I guess yeah, it's the same sure as your I have to go, and I need some lobster in the summer, right? That's what, uh, I need to come and have some good lobster. But anyway, I want you to introduce yourself, Sarah. Sure. Uh, so my name is Sarah Roach-Lewis, and I am a business coach and a feminist business strategist from Prince Edward Island. I essentially help busy um, service-based business owners double their annual revenues, even when they don't think it's possible. And I do that by, I help them show them how to create a business plan that makes the growth inevitable without feeling like they have to work 24 seven. Yeah. And that's a, that's a real problem. I think with women is the 24 seven nose to the grindstone type of, of mentality that we, I think we've absorbed. But I want to go back because I know that you're fairly new to new to uh, coaching. And mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about your your other incarnations in your life that you experienced. You were here in Ottawa. But tell us a little bit about what you did beforehand. Sure. So I spent I'm this is year five in business and I spent the first, you know, the 15 years before that working for um, in the not for profit sector and mostly for a feminist organization on Prince Edward Island. So uh, quite different and yet all kinds of synergies when you start to look at it. And, you know, one of the things that I loved um, because you were referred to me that I have never had on my show is a feminist uh, business coach and you identified yourself that way. Mm -hmm. But, um, and you had written a book that I had the pleasure of reading, She Rules. And I just want to say one thing. So as you know, I'm from Toronto because you know how Toronto people always tell you from Toronto because yes. that's the center of the uh, universe for us. So I haven't been out East and I don't know PEI. I know lots of people now from PEI, but one of the cool things in your book is the fact that you're from a fisher you're a fisherman's daughter fisherwoman's yes. daughter and it's not a new thing in your family it's like 400 years or something that your family has been fishermen you can it's all the way back to france as, as far as i remember uh, you're 100 percent correct so i am married to a fisherman i grew up in a fishing family and on my dad's side they can trace the fishing back to the Basque fishermen in about the 1600s in France. So e fishing is very firmly in our blood. How's that? I would say, I would say that like, and before that, like who knows in France how long it was, maybe forever. So how did you not get caught in the net? <laughs> so bad, but anyway, how did you not get caught in the net of being a fisherman? Oh, well, I get seasick. Um, so that was part of it. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I really did. I just married into it rather than, um, it, it, and it is a powerful hold for sure. I don't think it is, um, um, it is not a coincidence that I married a fisherman. And I think that, I, you know, I didn't end up on the boat um, for a number of reasons. And, um, and yet there's so much that I bring to my business that I can trace all the way back to, you know, the, that fishing history, even though 
I didn't know that I was, I grew up in an entrepreneurial house when I did. I, the, the fishing, uh, the, what do you call that? The identity of a fisherman is so strong that that's what our identity was, is that we were fishermen, but I didn't actually realize until really long after my dad died, um, that he was also an entrepreneur. Yeah. And like, when you think about the entrepreneurial skills that you get, tell this city gal, what sort of like entrepreneurial skills do you think that you absorbed? Well, one right off the top is optimism. And I, you know, fishermen. So my dad and mom both fished. My mother was part of the first wave of fisher of women in the 80s who decided that they wanted to go fishing because it really made sense from a financial perspective. We're talking about a community in a rural Prince Edward Island of 1500 people. There were absolutely no jobs. And so this made a lot of economic sense for women to go and fish with their husbands because it kept more of the income in the family. Um, and you know there were policies, there were things like being able to access employment insurance um, that they were able to do. So it made a lot of sense and was um, quite dramatic, let's say. There, uh, the, the history of women on the boat pre that was uh, that women were considered a scris, which is bad luck. So it was really bucking a lot of um, conventional wisdom for women to go fishing, and yet it made an awful lot of sense. And so for me, um, you know, my mom went fishing because it made sense. My dad fished because he absolutely loved it. And he was the kind of guy that in January, when you got a new calendar, the first thing that he did was he wrote down, he, he put a circle around May 1st because that was the day that the lobster season started. And every day he put an X on the calendar because that's how much he loved what he did. So I think, you know, those lessons are for me that I learned from him is do something that you love because it doesn't necessarily feel like a job, even when you're dealing with stinky bait, bad weather, terrible catches, terrible price. The man loved what he did, even when it sucked. And sometimes it really sucked hard. Um, so I think that's probably one of the big things. The other thing I feel that I learned from my parents is a relatively high degree of risk tolerance. Mother Nature is a terrible business partner. One should never go into business with Mother Nature. Um, so there was a lot that my parents did um, that was out of, you know, there was a lot of what happened to them that was outside of their control, and yet they did it anyway. I, I think that's amazing. You know, my, my I think I had read one time that it's also the most dangerous job in the world to be a fisherman. It's definitely up there. Now, I would call us kinder, gentler here than, say, you know, Alaska crab fishermen. But it is a dangerous job for sure. And you didn't connect that it was entrepreneurial because you just had not defined that you hadn't heard that world, that word in your world. Is that why? I didn't ever know. So part of it was I didn't hear that word. And part of it was we were fishermen. And that was like the identity was so strong with that, that there wasn't really any room 
for any other identities. And it wasn't until much later that I realized, right, <laughs> when you don't get a paycheck from an employer with a T4 attached to it in Canada, that means you're your own boss. Yeah. Yeah. And did your mom, did your, was your mom accepted when she became a fisherman? That's a great question. Over time, but it was a huge fight. It was a huge fight for those women. It was my mom, uh, you know, in our harbor where my parents fished. Um, you know, there was probably, I don't know, six women at the time, but it was not easy for them at all. And when I think about my mother and those other women, they did all of the hard work and fishing is really hard work. Yeah. You know, you get up at three in the morning and and you fish all day. There's 300 traps. Um, you have to bait them. And often my parents didn't get in from fishing until three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So we're talking like a 12 okay. or 13 hour day on the boat. And then you come home and, you know, when we were little, it was then still make supper, do laundry, um, make sure that we had our homework done. I, I was also raised in a household where my mom shed as much of that as she possibly could. We were taught from a very early age how to make our own lunches and what our particular role was on the boat. Uh, you know, we, we did laundry and, uh, you know, the the gloves. Oh, they're so smelly. But that was part of our job was to wash the gloves and turn the gloves and hang them up. So, you know, she really tried to distribute as much of that extra labor that she had. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, what wave of feminists would that be? Would that be the the second wave of feminism or the third wave? I'm trying no, to think she of was my pretty favorite. firmly a second yeah. wave feminist. Yeah. And so kids like us, you know, who grew up, I grew up in like, my mother went back to work, I think in the late seventies mm -hmm. and you, we kind of joke about the crockpot being our best friend and we learned <laughs> those skills, right? It wasn't the kind of Mrs. Cleaver sort of, you know, existence, but I want to talk to you about, and the reason why I asked about that is because I think feminism is very interesting in terms of how it, um, we were never, there was never a word for it when you think about generations before us, you know, they talk about standing on the shoulders of those women. And I think about um, my aunt Kate, who was the first woman to graduate from U of T in uh, pharmacy. And she started in the early twenties. She was academically gifted, but part of the reason why she went into it was because the great war, the men were all lost and her fiance was lost and she couldn't mm -hmm. get, they had to do kind of an apprenticeship back then. And none of the drugstores in Toronto would hire her. So essentially she and her sister, Mary, who also became a pharmacist, started their own stores. So there's a lot of necessity, I think, in some ways, when you think about feminism, but when you decided to take that title on, which attracted someone like me, to be honest, that's part of the reason why I want to have you on this. Yeah. What did you envision that to mean for you? Oh, that's a great question, Megan. And I have been a feminist for as long as I can remember. And I probably didn't know that word for a long time. And feminism is a loaded word. And yeah. I was intentional about using that phrase, a feminist business strategist or a feminist coach, because 
for two reasons. It really does define what it is that I do as a strategist, as someone who focuses on women in business. What makes me different is that deep understanding that I have about women's experience and all of the work and research and evidence that I have either read or generated myself over all those years of working for a feminist organization about the systemic and structural barriers that women face. And so for me, feminism is a belief and a movement that actively works toward ensuring equal rights and opportunities for all women at all levels. I am what I would call a broad, my, my, I'm a big tent feminist, and that comes from my experience working for uh, an organization where our goal was to increase the status of women on Prince Edward Island, whether they knew about us or not. And I mean, I want to I want to get into, you know, I, I had the the pleasure of reading She Rules and it is definitely from a woman's perspective and it, it deals with a lot of the experiences that I think most of the women who are listening to this will have had at one point. But your working background, you were this is this was really timely for me because you were working in and I, I mean, I wrote it down here when you you were working in this horizons horizons. Oh, yes. Trade Horizons, yes. Trade Horizons. Can you just tell a little bit about that? Because I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, sure. It was so great. So in 2009, the end of 2009, I was working at the early time at Women's Network, PEI, where I worked for a long time. And the province approached us and said, we would like for you to create a program to increase the number of women in skilled trades on PEI. Would you be interested in doing that? And we were like, we don't have any money. Uh, sure. Okay. And so that was the beginning of such an extraordinary opportunity and experience for me. So I led a team uh, over, well, really, that was 2010 when we really got started on that. And I left Women's Network in 2016 and, and Trade Horizons continues now. Um, so essentially, it is a career exploration and college prep program for women who are interested in exploring skilled trades as a career opportunity. And over time, what we recognized is that we really needed to have multiple um, um, interventions on that. So on the one hand, we needed to create that supply, right? So that supply of um, skilled trades women. And on the other side of that, we also need to create the demand. So we needed to work with employers as well to help them understand that women were actually an amazing solution to the skilled trade shortage that they were facing in 2010 and really has done nothing but gotten even more substantial in these last, you know, 12 years or so. Oh, well, I was timely that I read that because I had told you that. Um, so my husband is, is, is starting a side hustle because he's an electrician because Thomas is going to, my son Thomas is going to, you know, needs an apprenticeship. And believe it or not, it was very difficult for my husband to find an apprenticeship when he uh, was going in to become an electrician because he was in his, you know, mid thirties when he starts Johnny lately come. And I said to him, well, it'd be really great if Sarah, our Sarah, who is a teenager girl, um, 
to go into it. And I was, I was, and that's always reading that I was telling, I was reading the, you know, read it from your book and the, the tough time that I would imagine. And I know that I had posted my most successful LinkedIn thing that post I'd ever put on was about the trades and the beliefs around the trades mm-hmm. that there was, you know, it was sort of a, you were sort of an upstairs, downstairs point of view to the trades that you weren't maybe academically bright enough, or you weren't, um, it was a class war sort of thing. And I, you know, I was thinking about how much demand there is in Ottawa for the trades right now. And I said to my daughter, like, you know, why don't you think about this? You know, dad is starting his, he's incorporating, et cetera. And she just was like, no. And I, and there's this, I really feel like I can see why that was so well needed your organization. And I can see why there's so many women who would be skittish about going into the trades because I would imagine that they would experience a lot of, uh, a lot of, well, I imagine, I'm, I'm imagining what they would uh, experience, right? Yeah. Well, and your imagination is, is not wrong. Um, it is not an easy place for women. And, you know, and yet, <laughs> nor is being a resident care worker. So, you know, if, if you think about that, well, you want to be a plumber, you want to be a resident care worker, you're both you're dealing with poop in both of those circumstances, and one pays a lot more. Yep. One is a um, traditionally female role where we are, you know, that nurturer and that taker carer, and it pays a lot less. Um, the, the work environment, you know, sort of depending on the circumstance may or may not be better. Um, so I think it's, there's so much to women in the trades. There really is. Um, and what I saw over time is for employers who wanted to put in the effort, because there is an effort, um, that, you know, women make amazing trades, uh, they make amazing trades workers. And yet it is not an easy slog. It's a tough slog for them. And we have done a significant amount of work through Trade Horizons and, you know, all of the folks who work with that, it's been a number of years, but we did some research um, our our researcher did some analysis of some numbers, and we increased the number of women um, entering the trades by 1100% in this province. The challenge that I, I'm not in it anymore, but the challenge is retention. So many of those women who were thrilled and excited to get started, you know, a dozen years ago, I, I would have to go back and look, but there's a scant few who are still in the trades. And overwhelmingly, it's because they didn't feel welcome there. I've heard this too. And, and interestingly, I've heard it from women engineers as well. Uh, well, it's so, the same. Yeah. yeah. So anywhere where you're looking at women in traditionally male occupations. And so that really is what my expertise became over the years. So whether it is in fishing, tech, engineering, you know, science, trades, engineering, math, Um, Government is another, you know, women in politics is another area. So you look at all of these places where and, and, you know, women in business, although I just want to stop on that one, all of these areas where they are traditionally male spaces, the the commonalities of the challenges is quite extraordinary. I think that that's very true. 
And I think that um, I have a good friend of mine who is um, who is in charge of women and I guess inclusivity in the Chamber of Commerce. And I interviewed her a couple of months ago and we talked about the COVID and how this has brought so many of those challenges to and you talk a lot about the the COVID in your book, and I really appreciated you sharing a lot of your your own experiences. But when you think about, you know, now that you're business coaching, and at one point you had you made the decision, and I know what made you actually made the decision to go what I call from like the, although the nonprofit world, I guess that's not really a normal world. But I always joke with um, that my husband as an employee works in the normal world, and that someone who is in some ways entrepreneurs, it's kind of crazy people think you're crazy and often try and dissuade you from starting your own business right a lot of times i think so what made you jump into into this world well the not-for-profit world is kind of crazy too yeah, yeah i have a lot um, of friends in it yeah. <laughs> and uh so really for me a couple of things i was pretty burnt out i mean yeah. i loved what i did but um i left uh the the thing that sort of ended it for me was uh Giancomeshi and Dal Dentistry and Bill Cosby the beginning of the Bill Cosby was all the fall of 2014 and I had already put in pretty pretty large year uh before that and that I just had such an experience of being flattened by vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue that I knew I needed to get out. And my real challenge was, but I'm paid to be a feminist. Yeah. I have this amazing job. I get to do all of these incredible things. Why am I so jaded and burnt out? And so what I ended up doing was taking a fair bit of time to unpack. What is it that I love about my job? What is it that I can't handle anymore. And what I ended up discovering or realizing is that gender equality is working toward gender equity, gender equality is what lights me on fire. That's what makes me get up in the morning. And there are a million entry points to solving gender equity and gender equality in this world. And so once I realized I could leave my job and not leave my core values behind, it made it a lot easier. I love that. I really love that. And I, you know, it's very similar to me and why I work in, in mindset is because I understand a lot of the internal uh, blocks to women feeling free in any area, but, but in business at this particular time is a lot of the conditioning that we have. So when you were making that jump, though, and I always ask my my uh, podcast, get, what did you what did you struggle? What belief did you struggle with as you were making that decision to jump into this? That I couldn't sell. Mm. I again, going back to my dad's family, there's 15 of them. And of the of the men, most of them are in sales in some capacity or another. And I used to say, I don't have the roach selling gene. Right. And so that was, and then I spent my whole career working in the not-for-profit sector where like you weren't supposed to make a profit. Um, and so I used to say that I could write a proposal for $300,000 with ease, but I couldn't ask you for $20 for my kids' raffle tickets. Why do you think that is? What would you, what did you discover? 
Well, that was quite a process of discovery. Um, part of it was realizing that there's a process. I, lo I love process. I am just so process focused. Yeah. So when I realized that you can learn how to sell, that you can learn how to do something and then you can do it better, for me, that was super helpful. The other thing is um, really shifting that around to providing value for people. It took me a long time when I first started out to understand what does someone who worked in the not-for-profit sector for 15 years have, what value do I bring to women entrepreneurs? So it took some time to, un to unpack my own value around that and understand what it was that I, that I literally brought to the table. And then the third piece I feel that was helpful in terms of getting through some of those really difficult beliefs was um, creating an alter ego. So my uncle Sandy's, one of my dad's brothers, um, worked for Walmart Canada for many years. He sold electronics for his whole career. And he sold three quarters of a billion dollars of electronics in a 30 year career. And which is, extraordinary, right? Like I can't yeah. even wrap my head around what that yeah. looks like. Um, and so when he retired, he started collecting watches and um, refurbishing watches that he found at, at yard sales. So he gave me this finger watch. And when I started doing sales back in the early days, I would put on the watch and I would, that was my totem. And I would bring in the persona of Sandy, who was going to hop on this sales call for me because he'd already sold three quarters of a billion dollars worth of stuff in his career. What's a, you know, $2,000, $3,000 coaching program at this point. Uh, <laughs> so that combination of mindset, creating that alter ego and also the education and the training were kind of that trifecta that helped me get over that belief that I had. Well, I think that's great for your clients too. I think process and I think showing people, I think women like to, in some ways have the safety too, a step-by-step -step sort of uh, coaching. I think that's great. What I have discovered is funny. I just did a little podcast on this, a quick podcast about when I, uh, you know, I had a couple of guys phone me up and I've worked with men throughout the 20 years I've been doing mindset. They were my first clients. But what I found always was that men would immediately jump into mindset work. They'd be like, yeah, sure. Sign me up. And right away, no hawing and humming about the price. No saying, oh, I'll go and check with my wife. You know, they'd say, when is your next one? And when, when can we start? And they really understood it was an investment in themselves. So I saw a lot of beliefs around selling. I think this one's kind of going feeding back into the feminist idea is that for so long, we were told that sort of our skill set that we, we, I think we do naturally and that we cultivated over the millennials, we're not, we're, we were told they weren't worth anything and we weren't paid for it. I mean, how much work did you see your mother do for the community where, you know, there wasn't a heck of a lot of pay involved in that. And I saw that continuously with my mom. And how much work we still don't, we yeah, still do exactly and don't get paid. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there's both the gender wage gap and there's also the five hours a day that we do on top of whatever else that we do five hours more than the men in our community. So 
there, you know, there's lots of reasons why women don't value themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really easy, I think, sometimes to be like, do the work, right? Like, and I think that that is important um, to do the internal work, to work through what are those limiting beliefs and what is all of that. It's also equally as important to recognize that there are systemic and structural barriers to women getting moving forward. There are all so many messages ever from the time we are sorted into blue and pink onesies the messages are so profoundly different and so there is both that work on your belief system work on your own shit, but also remember that there's a whole lot of this that's going on that is not you and right. so you don't have to own what's not yours and, and what i really loved that you emphasized a lot in your book and i thought it was particularly important for women who are just coming into business to read this, because I think it is extremely important, a lot of the lessons that you're giving and a lot of the prescription that you have. And I thought that it was excellent how you talked a lot about self-care and also asking for, or, you know, I don't even know if asking for help from your partner or whomever, or maybe, you know, if you are mothers like we are of teens, then delegating and not taking on the sort of traditional roles that we would, had been steeped in in many ways you know i know my mom did two jobs uh coming home from nursing and you know doing all the other stuff and my dad was pretty good my dad was like probably one of the better ones of his era mm -hmm. but um i loved that and i also loved there's a couple things but i loved how you um encouraged the reader to be kind to themselves and to be accepting of themselves and there, and and some of the things that we we tend to obviously criticize our ourselves a lot, women, and ex expect a lot from. But also, what I loved is that you have a place. So you have a place. This is my favorite part, and I want anybody to listen. Just listen to this. This is cool, Sarah. Tell us about your pad that you have. Okay, so <laughs> I um, live in the country. It's about forty-five minutes away from Charlottetown, the the city in Prince Edward Island the one um and so i have an apartment in charlottetown and it is the most amazing thing in the whole world a client had uh suggested a couple of years ago that i needed a pied -a terre and she had one that i could use and i really struggled with that because who am i i mean I, like could you be more bougie than to have a pied -a terre in you know two two places to live and we have a housing crisis here I also have Meniere's disease, which is an imbalance yeah. of the fluid in the inner ear. And my kids go to go to school in this community. So it really is one of those things where structurally for me, having that little um, apartment of my own, that if I'm not feeling well, I can I, I don't have to worry about am I going to be too dizzy to drive home so yeah. there's that really practical piece yeah. of it, it is also um, something that works so well for our family. Um, and you know my husband and I will go there to get away, I will go there by myself when I need to see the arse end of the mall for a little while. Yeah. Um, 
my kids and I will stay there when, you know, they've got late basketball, uh, we can stay there. So it's one of those things that it doesn't necessarily, not everyone needs a pied -a but those of us who do really, really do. And so I think the, the kind of the message in that is thinking about what are those things that maybe other people would judge you for that maybe you think are crazy, but would actually make such a huge difference in your life and then giving yourself permission to do that. Yeah. And I, and I, th I thought it was personally, I thought it was excellent that you did this because I think you can, I think so many women neglect taking care of themselves. And I think in particularly in entrepreneurship and building your business, there's a lot of learning that goes on. And I don't even think I realized that until recently when I was telling my husband this, I was like, I'm trying to figure out this and, and, there's, and technology is always changing. There's always this, but I, and so you're tired and you need to rejuvenate. A lot of your creativity needs to be a part of this process. You need to be creative, you need to pivot. And I thought that that was excellent that you had that, that, that place, but also you could just go to a hotel room for the night, right? Like, you know, you could, or something even like whatever, cheaper that you could go for the day somewhere. Well, and that's uh. actually how that started for me is back in the day when I worked at Women's Network, it was the kind of job where a funner would say to you, you know, you would have a conversation with someone and every now and again, they'd say, that sounds great. Can you give me a proposal in 48 hours or 24 hours? Uh, okay. And so I would book a hotel room and write that. Or I would get stuck because where we live has terrible snowstorms and I'm a wimp. And so the $100 for the for the night to write that proposal uninterrupted or to have the peace of mind that I don't need to spend three hours on my 45 minute drive home is how I started. So I think you're absolutely right. And what are those little baby steps? And it might not be that for you it might be a housekeeper or a house cleaner or a, you know a, a beater car for your kids so you're not fighting over vehicles all the time i think you know what i think it's great advice i want to ask you because there's so many things in your book i have so much written down here that we'll never even get to <laughs> but i have so many things not alignment non-negotiable self-care you name it there's so many things that i encourage people to to read the book and i think that you have done a really good job of encouraging women and I think this is this is sort of an interesting feminist take on I think we're I think in many ways there's so many of us who I think naturally I grew up with the word feminism. I that was not a negative word in my world. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that my mother was a raging feminist in terms of her because of her age, but I think she certainly was a woman who created and and I had a lot of information from my mother. She went back into from the traditional. 1960 world to like the you know going into the work world and really taking yourself seriously and also really having an identity through her work and i think that that i don't know if you agree with this when you're coaching women to me business is an extension of who you are do you feel that when you with your with your your women that you're coaching yes and no how's that so i think yes in many ways we look at our business as an extension of who we are 
And I think sometimes that gets in our way because it'll, it, it's not our baby. Uh, you know, and we, we often will say that my business is my, no, it's not. Um, and it needs care and attention and love. And sometimes, um, those hard decisions that you wouldn't make with your kid. Um, so I, I think that, that we do often think of it as an extension of ourself. And in some ways that is really beneficial and healthy and in other ways, it's not necessarily right. So you you need to be aware. You need to be aware of what you're, how you, what you believe about your business, I think is what you're saying as well. When you look at your time coaching, and I mean, you probably have been actually coaching people all your life, I would imagine in the different, and this is a natural extension of, of the new incarnation of you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Thousands yeah. of women over the years. Yeah. 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 So it made sense to go into this area. When you think about your clients, and I have a lot of women who are listening who are who are building, they're growing their business, they're scaling their business. What would you recommend to them? What do they need to understand? So the first thing that women need to understand when they're growing their business is what stage of business they're at, because that sometimes is the great challenge as we do all of this work. But if we're not doing the work that is going to be most beneficial, for the stage of business that you're at, um, then there's a real challenge there. So I think one is understanding, are you in startup where your focus needs to be solely or 80% on sales and marketing, refining that product or that service? Are you at the place then where, you know what, my sales and marketing, yeah, yeah, I've got the money coming in. It might not be quite where I want it to be, but it's okay. Um, and the thing that gets me down is when, um, you know, I get a new client and I'm exhausted by the thought of it because it just means more work. Well, then, you know, you're maybe in ramp up and you need to be thinking about your systems and your processes. And then after that, maybe you need to be thinking about um, your team. So getting clear on what stage of business you're at and what you need to do at each point. I think as far as I'm concerned, in order to grow a business that is um successful profitable sustainable is you need a solid self-care plan you, you need solid self-care and you need a good plan if you've got those two things the plan will bake the growth into the business because you're thinking about the right things in order to grow oh i think that's great yeah sorry go ahead no, if I can just say one more thing, I think the other thing it's really important for women to hold in their head as they're growing is that less than as 86% of women owned businesses make less than $100,000 a year. And that is the hardest stage of business. That's when you're doing it all yourself. And you, you don't actually, it, it is harder to make the case for outsourcing for investing in your business because much of that when you take away sort of your ordinary operating expenses you need that money to pay your mortgage right. so and when people are when women are growing i encourage you to think about how do i grow um you know as quickly as i can through that really difficult stage and that's where that solid self-care and a good plan really comes into play well, I think that's that's excellent advice. I think um, I, it was a hard go for me to learn the self care, and I'm still learning it. But you know, yes. I think yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. And I think uh, different stages in your life, like the teens and the COVID. I yeah. mean, as, as I was talking about uh, my, my, my friend from the Chamber of Commerce and what the data has come out, right, from COVID and how it's affected women, you know, I wasn't surprised that, for example, in the last election, they were talking about childcare and, mm -hmm. and supporting women in childcare. They're not doing that from the goodness of their heart. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing that because they want them back at work and the economy to, to flourish. And that's in, in many ways. So I want to, I want to end, um, well, I wanted to ask you about your 90 and 90. I don't know if, if, if that's the good thing to ask about Sarah, but I was going through, so anybody who's going through the book, um, because that sort of caught my eye, but I didn't have a chance to, to dig into it. Tell me about that. Sure. 90 for 90 is a workshop that I do call and it's 90 minutes to plan the next 90 days in your business. So shockingly, it's about planning. And so what I really do in that is give you the Coles notes of what it what does it look like to create a solid plan in your business. We look at vision first. Um, and, you know, so we do like a little dash of strategy, a good dose of planning, and then what does it look like to act on that? So that's really, it is the framework of everything that I do is, is that 90 for 90. It's having a good plan. And as entrepreneurs, it is one of those skills that we don't necessarily have solidly built out. And that is what does an entrepreneurial business plan look like? Because we tend to think about business plans as not for us. Those are for big corporations and they are big and clunky and don't make sense. Whereas what I work on is all you need is 90 minutes and you can create something that is going to be robust enough to keep you going and is going to help you see those changes that you want to see to you know double your revenues in the next 12 months if that's what you want to do yeah and i think it i think that um i just want to let anybody know who's listening i will put a link to this anyway i will put a link to your website so don't worry if they're not right. writing it down yeah. But I, I also think it's really valuable, the 90, 90 uh, days. I think that for my type of personality, and I wish, I can't tell you how much I wish all this stuff was available like 20 years ago I know. when I was coming out of the gate. Like it, it's, I sometimes say to my husband, like it's so frustrating, even in terms of how much better in terms of women connecting with each other, which I didn't have mm -hmm. emotionally, how great that would have been. But I, I know that, that I'm a big picture thinker. And so sometimes um, 90 days actually is perfect for me yeah. because sometimes I can't go beyond that. But if you go, okay, here's your vision for, 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 for the 90 days, that seems like it's, it seems easier than if you do, like, I know that some people plan out for a year, but for my type of personality, when I read that, I was like, yes, that's, that's what I want to see. I think for personality wise, and also one of the joys of being a small business owner is that we can be nimble. And so what I encourage people to do is have that vision for the year. So where do you want to see your business in a year from now? Whether that is a revenue target, it's usually a revenue target. Yeah. Um, but where do you want to be in 12 months from now? What are those big things that you want to accomplish? And then you pull it back to, okay, so in the next 90 days, what are the one or two projects that you're going to work on that's going to drive toward that growth that you want to see? And we we want to just keep 
pulling it back to being very realistic. So I think one of the things that I see over and over and over again is women beat themselves up for a multitude of things, including not hitting their goals. And so what I used to see when I started doing this is that this was that was this was happening. And then when we started doing that entrepreneurial analysis, looking at the data, what I was seeing over and over again is that women didn't actually have enough time to do the things that they said they were going to do. So now we build that right into the into the 90 for 90 is you do your nice big brain dump of here are all the things that I want to do in the next 90 days. And then before you make any decisions, take a little look at your calendar. And you know, what is the time you're spending on your business or like in your business doing your work already? What is the time that you already know that you're away from your business? What you have left is your business building time. And so for some women, that's 12 days in a quarter. For other women, that's four. Yeah. And so that then makes a very big difference about what are some of those activities that you decide to do. Yeah. And you got to pad it. I had massive tech problems the other day. So I lost a, a half day, like I lost half my day to tech stuff. I mean, it happens, shit happens, right? Exactly. But you know, the question I love to ask, um, the business women that I, or, or the women period in, in, on this podcast is what belief have you cultivated or do you have now that helps you as you're building your own business? It really is that belief. It's an extension of the belief that I started with. And the belief that I started with is that gender equality can solve all of the world's problems, every one of them. And the extension of that is a deepening, a, a deeper belief in myself and that I actually do have such amazing insight and a strategic brain and a passion for other women's, other women's businesses that I do bring such incredible value. And it took me a long time to get there. Um, but I think that's the, that is the extension of it. It's like, not only do I believe that gender equality can solve all of the world's problems, I actually think that I have a, a role to play, you know, a, a role to play in, in, in a piece of that solution. Yeah. And, and you do dive into the book. So in She Rules, Sarah dives in and expands on that more. And I love to learn about that. I love, I love, um, I remember a couple of years ago, and it must have been quite a few years ago, I remember seeing an interview with Jimmy Carter, the former president of the United States. And I remember him saying, due to the work that he, you know, does used to do anyway throughout the world on democracy, saying that really the 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 solution to world poverty was women becoming more powerful, more educated, making more money. Like bottom line. Yeah. So, right? So this is, you expand on this in your business and I truly encourage people to pick it up and get it at Amazon. I'll put a link to it. It's easy, it's enjoyable to read and I really enjoyed having you today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Good, good. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Belief Alchemy with Megan O'Neill. 
And before you go, I just want to tell you about a fantastic micro course, a free one that I offer to anyone who wants to go to meganoneal.ca because I'm in Canada slash courses. It's called the Confidence Lab, Own Your Entrepreneurial Expertise. And I created this micro course because I know that there's so many busy women who are ambitious, who want to go to the top of their field. They understand underneath all of the mind trash that there is tremendous potential, but they get caught in their own way. They, they play it small instead of going big and bold. So in this course, I will teach you to understand where you are getting in your way and offer some tools and guidance so that you can be all that you want and reach those income goals. It's what we all want. So go to meganoneal.ca courses. Bye guys. See you next week.